Welcome to the On the Economy podcast. I'm Jared Bernstein. And I'm Ben Spielberg. And today we're here to talk about healthcare. Now, longtime listeners know that we've already done one show on healthcare, so why revisit it? Well, when we talked about healthcare four months ago, the bill that we were talking about was just in the House of Representatives, and it was kind of the beginning of Republican efforts to repeal and replace Obamacare in the time since. The bill moved over to the Senate. It changed various times in some details, but not actually in spirit and in what it would do. The word draconian was used a lot in describing those plans, largely because they took a lot of coverage away from low-income, vulnerable people, particularly through cutting Medicaid, and they gave the proceeds away to wealthy people in tax cuts. So this was Robin Hood in reverse, big time. The way I described it at the time is they were trying to solve the problem that low-income people have too much health care and high-income people don't have enough in the form of tax cuts. And because of a lot of great work done by the advocacy community, thus far, their efforts have been foiled. That's true for now. I think we want to be very cautious about writing it off for good. There were a lot of headlines written during the last four months saying, Obamacare repeal and replace efforts are dead. And then they were coming back very soon after that. The things that I want to highlight about what you said are every estimate of the bills that they put forward would cause millions upon millions of people to lose health coverage and, as you say, funnel a lot of money to rich people. And so it's unequivocally a positive thing that those efforts have failed for now. Their most recent repeal and replace vote on what was called the skinny repeal bill failed by having all the Democrats in the Senate and three Republicans in the Senate join together. But as you say, it was some great work from the advocacy community that really helped drive that. But you make an important point, which is the skinny repeal failed by a skinny margin, (laughs) one vote. That said, at the moment, we have perhaps a bit of a reprieve and an opportunity. And I know you have a recording here of Mitch McConnell after the skinny vote failed. Socialized medicine. The government take over of everything. European health care. Only four of them weren't afraid to say they didn't think that was a good idea. So maybe that's what they want to offer. We'll be happy to have that debate with the American people. So it's time for our friends on the other side to tell us what they have in mind. And we'll see how the American people feel about their ideas. So let me ask you, Ben, McConnell may be earnest, he may be bluffing, but if he is bluffing, should Democrats call his bluff and advance a positive agenda here? I would say absolutely. I was very excited, actually, when McConnell took the floor and said that he wants to see the American people have this debate right now, because it's a debate I think that we will very easily win. If you look at public opinion polls on the Republican efforts to repeal and replace Obamacare, they were wildly unpopular. Support for them was somewhere in the teens in a lot of surveys. And then if you looked at Obamacare popularity, it actually went higher than it had ever been during this debate. Things like single-payer health care have gained a lot in public popularity. And so I think now is the time for Democrats to advance this popular vision. So that raises a really interesting debate that I've been just lately hearing start to percolate up. And that's kind of a warning from progressives, from those on the left saying, this is not the right time to push for single payer. That's too ambitious. There's really no plan in place. Opponents would really be geared up to push back on the disruptions to the medical profession, to the insurance industry, and so on. But you seem to be saying, no, this is a fine time for that kind of a push. So I get where those people are coming from because it definitely is a defensive time. But I think there are two things to keep in mind. One is sometimes the best defense is a good offense. And part of the way 
that you expose what the Republicans want to do as being totally different from what we actually want for healthcare in this country is by advancing what is the vision of healthcare that we actually want to see. The United States healthcare system, despite the improvements that Obamacare has made, is still pretty bad relative to healthcare in the rest of the world. Well, wait, pause on that for a second. We still spend about 18% of our GDP on healthcare. That's about 9% in the public sector, 9% in the private sector. And that compares to something around 10 to 12% of their GDP for other advanced economies. And they cover everyone with outcomes that are as good as ours, if not better. In many cases, much better. And so if we want to show that the Republican plans aren't going to work for people and continue to highlight that they want to do everything exactly in the wrong direction, one of the best ways to do that is to come out and say, here's what we stand for and here's what we want to see the healthcare system become. Let me offer two responses to that. One, I want to save more to get into in our concluding segment. But first of all, I wonder if there's some kind of a hybrid that is something that both serves to make the Affordable Care Act work better now, but also puts us on a path, probably a more gradual path that I would envision than you would envision, to more of a single-payer type of a system. So that's one thought. Keep that in mind. We'll get into that a little bit more with our guests. But secondly, I want us to argue a little bit later about this notion of path dependency. How much does where we are, where we're starting from, how much should that influence how we think about where we're going? I would love to argue about that later, and I think we definitely should. For now, I think the one thing I want to highlight is the second reason I think now is the time to think big, at least, and that is because at some point, hopefully, you are in a position where you're able to advance something yourselves at the federal level, and when that time comes, I think we want to be doing the thinking now about what it is that we're going to try to roll out at that time. I agree with that, but I also think it's time for some poetry and music. I think that's very appropriate. Today's interlude focuses some true American in poetry. You know, I get the New Yorker magazine every week and I really enjoy it, except for all the poems. I read those poems, they just go straight over my head and I feel like I must be some sort of ignorant troglodyte. And then the other day I was driving the car and I was listening to Chuck Berry. Are you familiar with the great rock and roller Chuck Berry? Somewhat. So Chuck Berry, the late Chuck Berry, has this song, Maybelline, great song. And the lyrics to that song to me are American poetry at its best. They're soulful, they've got great imagery, pure Americana, great rhythm. And when you think about that as poetry, then poetry makes a lot of sense to me. So before we hear this, let me just read the verse that we're about to hear. As I was motivating over the hill, I saw a Maybelline in a Coupe de Ville, Cadillac rolling on the open road, nothing outrun my V8 Ford, Cadillac doing about 95, bumper to bumper rolling side to side. Maybelline, why can't you be true? Now that's poetry. As I was motivating over the hill, I saw Maybelline in a Coupe de Ville, a Cadillac rolling on an open road, nothing outrun my V8 Ford, a Cadillac doing about 95, moving bumper to bumper rolling side to side. Maybelline, why can't you be true? Oh, Maybelline, why can't you be true? You didn't start it back doing the thing you used to do. So that's a little great American poetry through music for you all. At any rate, we're back here with two great guests. Ben, introduce our guests. So we have Sarah Leek, who's one of our colleagues here at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. She's a senior policy analyst on our health team. And we have John Walker, who's a writer who's been doing a lot of writing about healthcare for the website Shadowproof recently and wrote a proposal that we're interested in talking a little bit about. But first, Sarah, I want to start with you. Jared and I talked a little bit about how we did a healthcare episode four months ago, and now we're kind of in a new place. And we think that 
maybe there's a moment potentially to make some improvements to what we currently have. Is that something that you agree with that resonates with you? What do you think about the moment? Because you're much more steeped in this stuff than we are. Well, I'm feeling a lot of relief that the repeal effort didn't actually come to fruition. So now we're sitting here with a law still as it is providing coverage to millions and millions of people. So I do think there is an opportunity to step back and think about where we go from here. I'm kind of in the trenches right now. So I'm thinking a lot about what we need in the next three to six months. Talk about what it is we need, but also is this truly a political moment wherein we might be able to get some of what we need? I think we're in new territory. It's been a very weird year with a lot of twists and turns in terms of what was going to happen on healthcare. And I think we've all emerged with a better understanding, hopefully, of what the public wants from healthcare. If it wasn't already known, I think it's known now. People want good coverage? They want (laughs) decent coverage, maybe some minimum federal standards about what their policies have to have, help affording coverage, not really, really high costs under their plans, and also making sure that people that have lower incomes or that have disabilities or have medical conditions, that all of those people can access the system. I think that's a huge, important thing to take away from what we've been going through the last few months. So if there is a moment wherein we could improve what we have, what would you do? I mean, I think affordability has been an issue all along long under the ACA. I work mostly on the private health insurance side, so we know that when people have to go get coverage on their own in the individual market, there's lots of people who still have issues affording it, both their premiums and their out-of-pocket costs. So that's something I would really hope that we tackle as soon as possible. I think that goes for people at the low and moderate income scale who are already getting subsidies. Some of those groups are not getting a sufficient subsidy to make their coverage affordable. It also goes for those people who maybe are above the subsidy level in some cases. You wrote a piece recently, too, about the things that we don't want to see the Trump administration doing. And so I'm wondering if you can just say a little bit about what's supposed to happen and what do we want to make sure that we don't see from them. The imminent threat is that the cost-sharing reduction payments are going to get stopped. So on the outside chance that not every listener knows what a cost-sharing yes. reduction payment is. Could you give us yes. a thumbnail on so that? So it's kind of the other subsidy. The one, don't really subsidy. Know. the one subsidy subsidizes premiums. Mm-hmm. And this subsidy, the cost-sharing reduction, subsidizes deductibles and co-payments that you pay when you get health care gotcha. under your plan. So for people under 250% of poverty, they get significant assistance with mainly their deductibles. So you're talking about a mid-level silver plan that could have maybe like a $4,000, $6,000 even deductible hmm. for an individual, for a lower-income person that might be in the hundreds of dollars. So that's a huge improvement. That help for lower income Mm -hmm. people is still available even if the Trump administration were to stop payments as it has been threatening to do. There's also an ongoing court case where the specific way the payments are appropriated is at issue. So there's a lot of concern in the insurance industry, among state regulators, among all of us, about those payments stopping. So, John, I wanted to get your thoughts because those are the immediate battles and things that we should be thinking about, definitely, in terms of playing defense. One of the things that Jared and I mentioned a little bit in our intro is sometimes a good offense can be a good defense, too. And I think your proposal is very much in the spirit of a longer-term thing that we should be thinking about. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about both the question we asked Sarah in terms of the political moment and why your proposal is something that you came out with recently, and then also kind of lay out what exactly that proposal is. My proposal is basically how we would get to a single-payer-like system the least politically difficult way, because it would be very politically difficult. And I put it out now because if you want a plan to succeed, you've got to work out all the details and all the criticisms and prepare for all the political attacks years ahead of time. 
I think we just saw what happened when you run on a vague concept without a real plan with the repeal in place effort from the GOP. You don't really come up with that plan in two, three, four months in Congress. You just need to do that work ahead of time. And I suspect it'll probably be a big moment for Democrats in the next election cycle if Trump's current approval ratings hold. And they need to be prepared to decide what they want to do in that sort of golden few months afterwards. The main criticism I hear, and it's not just from the right, in fact, lately it's been more from progressives, of treating this as a single-payer moment is that, A, nobody really has a coherent plan, sort of as you were just intimating, and B, getting from here to there implies a ton of disruption. You've got the insurance industry, the medical industry, you've got people who maybe complain about their insurance but like what they have. To what extent do you believe that those objections should be weighed pretty heavily in this moment? Oh, I think those objections are real things that need to be dealt with. But that is what my plan is about, figuring out a way to take on the healthcare industry specifically and not cause as much disruption to everyone else because the more disruption you cause, the more opponents you get to a plan, the tougher it is to pass. So I want to get to your plan in a second, but I want to bring Sarah back in. So you're in the trenches dealing with incremental changes to the Affordable Care Act. To what extent is this broader push for something pretty different, maybe a single-payer plan, complementary or competitive to the kind of work that you're trying to do? I don't think there's anything wrong with having these other ideas out on the table, longer-term efforts to make big changes. I don't think that prevents us from doing more incremental things on a year-by-year, month-by-month basis when the opportunity arises. And I agree with what John said about needing to kind of lay the groundwork early for any kind of change, especially when you're talking about healthcare. John, tell us what your secret sauces to minimize disruption in moving from where we are to where you'd like to see us get? It's mainly focused on the fact that we pay too much for healthcare. So the current fight of the plan is basically to reduce the amount we're paying for healthcare and cause everyone to benefit from that cost reduction. And the idea is to prevent having political fights with anyone else outside the healthcare industry. Because We know insurers and hospitals and drug makers are going to oppose any effort to bring down costs, whether it's through single payer, whether it's within a different framework. But there's other fights that can emerge that aren't necessary. So what my plan does is it creates a basic universal health care program that everyone in the United States is automatically qualified for and would automatically be enrolled in. And a sort of income scaled premium would just be charged to them automatically. But... If you have an employer, they can provide you the same sort of employer plan you've got before. It just has to meet the same qualities and requirements of this new government plan. And that's basically the main reason that you can reduce the disruption. Instead of completely trying to eliminate the employer-provided system, you create a sort of strong mandate, much like you got in Hawaii. And that creates a funding source that's pretty similar to the funding source in a lot of places, France, Germany. They all basically have a sort of premium through employer as a main source of funding. So your idea is that employers would switch over to this plan at some point just because the cost would be cheaper? Not all employers would. If you look at other countries, even like Denmark, which has a very strong socialized medicine system, there's still a lot of companies that provide a sort of even better private healthcare system to people. But I do think to a large degree, if you provide some Medicare-like plan that any employer can buy into, a lot of employers are going to want. 
There's a reason that during the healthcare fight, the ACA fight, the number one demand from the hospitals was not to let people buy into a Medicare-like program because they knew that that is what people and companies would want to do if they were given the option. So if you give them the option, it sounds like the hospitals and probably the insurers would fight back pretty hard, no? Oh, yeah. They're definitely going to fight that. And there's really no way around Mm -hmm. the fact that we've got a bunch of people making way too much money off direct and indirect government subsidies. And we got to take that away. I think this is a pretty fundamental point. I'd be interested in your take, Sarah. If you go from spending 18% of GDP down to spending, I don't know, 12% of GDP, that's six percentage points amounts to over a trillion bucks that's going to somebody. And, you know, my inefficiency is your paycheck. So... How does this sound to you as someone who's been ensconced in the trenches? As a cynical inside the Beltway person for way too long now, (laughs) having any of those three entities, the drug industry, healthcare providers, or insurers against a bill can be enough to sink it even just one of those entities. So I think it's a huge challenge. When I was working for the Obama administration, we were putting together the ACA. That insight that Sarah just shared was extremely present in the room and in many cases meant trying to bring these folks on as stakeholders as opposed to opposers. I guess my question slash broader pushback to that is generally speaking, and most things we want to do as people who are social justice minded, there is going to be some entrenched interest opposition. And so the thing that I appreciate about John's plan, at least, is that it takes an approach of given that there will be some of this opposition, what do we do so that we can build momentum around this idea and effectively counter it and potentially erode, if not the resistance from those industries, some of their power in being able to resist it over time. Is that right, John? Yeah. And I think one of the enduring problems with the popularity of the ACA was it did not go after the industry. That is the inherent problem in American politics right now is what the people want seems to have very little bearing on what Congress does. If you don't build support for it, you don't get it. I'm a little unclear about the financing of your plan. In other words, one of the things that I've always thought would be kind of a blockage in Medicare for all, something I've long thought was a really good idea, to be clear, was the fact that you have to kind of get people to do a calculation. Yes, you may be paying more in taxes to support a public option, if you will. But at the same time, if you net out your savings on the premiums, you'll be better off. That's not a simple thing to communicate to people. Have you thought about financing challenges in this plan you're suggesting? If you simply mandate employers buying into this Medicaid-like program or buy private coverage, it's equally as good. What the average person will actually see on their paycheck is just a reduction in premiums or a reduction in deductibles. And I think that is a better way to take care of it. A sort of employer mandate of this nature has been used in Hawaii for some 40 years pretty effectively. I don't think there's a need to completely redefine how people pay for health care or which people pay for health care when we could be focused on just reducing the cost and spreading that savings mm-hmm. amongst all the people currently paying for health care. Let me ask you about this, Sarah. One of the things that we've been hearing about are bear counties. Now, I'm not talking about the big grizzly kind of bear. I'm talking about naked. This is a family show, so keep it clean. But explain to us what a bear county is, and then I'll show you where I'm going with this. The current situation is that there's something like 20 counties on the map right now that for the 2018 plan year, there's concern that they won't have any insurer offering a plan within the marketplace. The exchanges? The exchange or the marketplace. And 
that's important because the ACA marketplace plans are the only way you can get those subsidies we were talking about mm. before. Mm -hmm. So if people don't have access to a plan, then they don't have access to those subsidies. So suppose there were to be some sort of a public offering in places that had no private offering. I'm wondering if this is some sort of a hybrid between what you and what John are talking about that maybe squares some of the differences here. There's been a lot of talk about this because there's a lot of needling going on behind the scenes to try to get insurers to participate in these bear counties, but there is a limit to how much leverage the federal government has. So there has been talk of public option that would sort of be there if it was needed. In some cases, you could see that being an incentive for a private insurer to stay around rather than lose some territory in a place where they've maybe already gone to the trouble to have a network and customers. So there's a lot of merit to trying to think about how to give more power to the marketplace to try to get insurers to participate in places where it's difficult. So before we wind this down, let me ask you, Sarah, because I try to stay up on all of your prolific writings. Lately, you've been suggesting that some of the problems in the individual side of the market seem to be kind of working themselves out. There's a premise of our discussion that says the ACA has some real structural flaws, but perhaps that's not so much the case. Perhaps there's been more growing pains than structural flaws. There are a lot of good things that have come out of the ACA. I mean, millions more people covered and many more people having access to affordable health care under these plans, including in the private market, as well as Medicaid. Where we should be now is that a few years in, insurers have learned how to price these plans, how to market the plans, and how to make a little bit of money off these plans. And that's really what you need in a system that's based on private insurers offering coverage. So that's good news. The problem is that mainly as a result of the Trump administration, as well as the debate that's gone on in Congress, instead of being in a place where we're sitting and thinking, okay, we've come through a really hard time and now things are somewhat more stable, we kind of know what to expect, instead we're entering another period of uncertainty. And that's really difficult. It's difficult for everyone, especially the consumers. So John, can you envision the Affordable Care Act having seriously ironed out some of the kinds of kinks we've been talking about, meeting the sort of goals that you aspire to when you sit down and think about where we should go on health care, or do we really need to think about something else that gets the private insurers out of the picture? I've spent a lot of time studying other countries' health care systems. And it is possible to have a private insurance regulated market system. Switzerland does it pretty well. The Netherlands do it okay. The core problem is getting from the ACA to something like that would be just as big of a political lift as getting to something like single payer. Because the fundamental thing the ACA lacks that these other countries have are the strong cost control measures. When Switzerland passed their universal health care system, at the same time they imposed an individual mandate on people, they imposed basically a strong cost cap on all providers. The big problem with the ACA is if you're in a rural area, there's one hospital, that hospital's got a monopoly, they can tell the insurers what they've got to pay, they can reject insurers. You wind up in a situation where you basically just do not have any market forces keeping price down, market forces driving price up, hmm. and no government stepping in to do anything about it. This takes me back to my earlier comment about my inefficiency is your paycheck, so follow the money, right? Yeah, and mm -hmm. I think it could be done. Mm -hmm. I just don't see people out there rallying for we need an all-payer system with a government price setting for hospitals and a reinsurance program <laughs> spreading the money. 
throughout the insurance market so everyone competes over quality as opposed to avoiding costs. That definitely does not fit on a bumper sticker. It is possible in theory, but this is why I think letting people in companies buy into a government program is the way to do it. Sarah and John, I just want to say thank you both so much for coming on. It's been really great to have you. Thank you. I agree. Thanks for having me on. I enjoyed that discussion. I think there's an inherent tension in that kind of a discussion, a tension between building on what we have and leapfrogging what we have to something much better. And as we've discussed earlier in this podcast, Ben, there's a movement afoot among progressives, that, particularly older ones like me, who are maybe more path-dependent, who look at the current system, look at all the disruption between the current system and some kind of a Medicare for all single payer, and think, don't try to go there, that's too disruptive and you're gonna kind of screw everything up. I am more path dependent than you are, and I think we need to be careful not to discourage people who want to go down that path. But what are your thoughts about path dependency? I think you weighed it less heavily than I do. Yes, so I see where you're coming from, but I have a couple places of pushback. The first one is that while it is certainly true and I think important to take account of the obstacles that exist to enact some sweeping changes to very entrenched systems that there are a lot of interests defending, that does not mean we shouldn't push to do that because I think we've already lost if we are tailoring what we try to get to what seems plausible at the moment. Those entrenched interests are going to be difficult to fight, but I think if we push hard, we have the opportunity to make some gains, and we won't know how far we can get unless we actually try for it. I will say that it's a bad habit of progressives to negotiate with ourselves. That is, we often start out where we want to end up, and that's not really smart negotiating. By the way, just to be clear, I should have said this earlier, by path dependency, what I mean is that where you end up is very much a function of where you start. And when I was talking earlier in this podcast about that 6% of GDP that differentiates what we spend on healthcare to the average of what other advanced economies spend, that's around a trillion dollars in today's GDP. And that's the entrenched interest. That's people's incomes who will fight you tooth and nail. Now, part of this argument is the fact that I'm 61 and you're like 12 or so. No, how how old are you? I'm 29. You're 29. So (laughs) I've fought these entrenched interests much longer and perhaps have been a little bit whacked about more. (laughs) So I think there's a balance you have to find between provoking disruption and getting to where you need to go. So the second point I wanted to make is about this disruption point, because while, again, I totally get where it's coming from, I think it's a valid thing to think about. I do think in DC policy debates, we often underweight the downside to the status quo. So we think a lot about unintended consequences, things that might happen that would shake up the current system. We have a huge status quo bias. We do. And it is understandable that we would be concerned about disruption to a system where some people have things they really don't want to lose. But I think we also need to really think a lot about the fact that millions of people right now, the status quo is working very poorly for them. And so we really want to push for things that will really help them. That's a good point. We shouldn't overestimate the costs of disruption without considering the benefits of what's on the other side of it. But I also think one of the factors that amplifies my path dependency is that we don't really have a single-payer plan that everyone agrees on. Now, I know John had an interesting plan, and we had a good discussion about that. But to some extent, I think that that's kind of a failure of the progressive think tank community. And I'm a member of that community, so I'm criticizing myself here, but I think we need to walk and chew gum at the same time. That is, we need to defend what we have, expand on what we have in all the ways that Sarah was very thoughtfully articulating while we plot 
a course forward. I think that's a great point, and it really resonates with me on the level of how I think about political reality. I think that our opponents in these debates a lot of times, people who don't really have an interest in social and economic justice, they view political reality as something they help shape. And I think too often we think that political reality is something that is given to us, that we receive, rather than something that we influence. So you're talking about potentially taking on a role in shaping what's possible. And we've talked about movements, Fight for 15, Fed Up Campaign, Black Lives Matter, that have shown that it is possible to shift the terms of debate by getting out there. So this is key. And the idea is that we on the progressive side tend to be very reactive. And our opponents often tend to be very proactive. And to really advance our cause, we need to rebalance those forces. Absolutely. Now, at the same time, the reactive work is extremely important. and Especially these days, playing defense is obviously critical for this era we're in. So I think your analogy about walking and chewing gum at the same time is very <laughs> appropriate. Now, with that said, I think we're pretty much out of time. So I was wondering, Jared, if you thought we should do a joke this week. You know, I don't really have a joke. On the other hand, that healthcare debate, what a joke. <laughs> I think that's actually a fair one for this that's week, the, the entire last four months of healthcare discussions. It's a joke. So for this week, that's on the economy.